Good morning, Montview. <clears throat> it's so glad to, I'm so glad to share with you this morning. I promised Ian that I wouldn't take more than 20 minutes, and he kind of suggested 15. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll do my best. But you know how it is when preachers don't get in the pulpit too often. We tend to try to cram everything in one presentation. But in light of the fact that I am now a part of the Montview Presbyterian Church, you don't have to worry. You won't stay beyond that to which you are accustomed. I promise you that. I want to reverence the God in me that keeps me grounded and connected. And I want to reverence the God in you that allows me to see beyond the cloak that you used to go outside today and commune with the essence of who we are. That's what makes us one. And relationships that are based on that are the relationships that apply to the saying what God has put together. Human beings cannot tear asunder. It goes way beyond marriage. But if I can connect with you relative to the essence of who you are, and you connect to me relative to the essence of who I am, we can't even break up that relationship. <clears throat> I want to honor the co-pastors, Ian Cummings and Clover Beale, as they shepherd this Montview Presbyterian Church. I want to acknowledge and honor all of the visitors, members, friends, and even foes in relation to our church gathering. As I bring you greetings from my creator, who some call God, and some call Allah, some call Jehovah, some call all-powerful, all-knowing, and always there, call God what you will. Just know that God exists, and that God, at least in my humble opinion, represents the essence of who we are. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me today, and God's word is on my tongue and has inspired me to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit, those of us who are discouraged and struggling to connect with the essence of who we are because of significant life events and things that just come our way. Proclaiming freedom for the prisoners, and those of us who are, and we all are, subject to our minds and our perspectives. Know this, they can get in the way of doing God's work. Giving sight to the blind, all of us when our egos taint our capacity to see clearly. And as we prepare to receive 
and or proclaim the word of God, I, I want you to think back to a time when someone asked you to do something that you thought was completely ridiculous. You just upset because they had the audacity to ask you to do it. You ever had those moments where you want to ask them, have you completely lost your mind? And um, they might have the audacity to say, no, I, I haven't. I was just wondering about you because you didn't say yes soon enough. It's just amazing. It might have been a friend asking you for a large sum of money, kind of forgetting that they asked you that same question about six months ago and you're still waiting <laughs> to be repaid. Perhaps it's a former lover asking you forgiveness after they have broken your heart again and again and again. Perhaps it's the boss that's asking you to work harder than anyone else just because you're very efficient at what you do. I have a mantra for that. Just because I'm good at what I do doesn't mean I want to do what you're supposed to do. Perhaps it's someone asking you for support of favor when they've refused your requests over and over and over again. Don't you know this is a tit-for-tat game here we're playing? Did you forget? The audacity of these scenarios boggle my mind, boggles my mind. The impudence of those asking for these favors can be infuriating. How dare you? And yet, here we are, face to face, with these impossible requests accompanied by the audacity of hope that our answer will be yes. That takes some nerve. Really does take some nerve. Here's the question that someone posed to me in response to these impossible requests. What if we are expected to say yes and that yes is the appropriate answer, regardless of the injustices that we believe have been perpetrated upon us. What if the person or persons making these ludicrous requests were agents in our transformation into the image and likeness of our creator? What if this impossible yes answer is necessary for us to practice this self-imposed, all-too-elusive spiritual connection transcending what we can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, or even feel? What if this impossible yes answer moves us beyond our capacities to imagine and into the land of infinity and eternity, which moves us so far beyond who we think we are? Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Spirit of the living God, melt us and mold us and fill us and use us. Spirit of the living God, we only want to hear your voice. We're hanging on every word. 
We want to know you increasingly. The spirit of the living God, we're leaning into all you are. Everything else can wait. Spirit of the living God, come now and breathe upon our hearts. Come now and have your way. When you speak, when you move, when you do what only you can do, it changes us. It changes what we see and what we seek. When you come in the room doing what only you can do, it changes us in a way that everything looks different. Spirit of the living God, you are welcomed in this place. Amen. When I reflect on the introduction and considering the reality of our outrage when we are asked to perform the impossible, the title of my sermon is, You Want Me to Do What? Have you all ever had those you want me to do what moments? It's like, not only do we ask that question of our peers, but I don't know about you all, I have the audacity to ask that question of God. You want me to do what? That is something that when we think about it, all of us have been there. Things like trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. God, I know you know everything, but do you know how many degrees I have? What do you mean I can't trust in my understanding? I'm credentialed in understanding, and you're telling me to trust in you? I don't think Jesus got a PhD. What are you talking about? And it, it's, it's in all of us. God, I know you know everything, but did you consider this? You want me to do what? And as we sort of move through, there are some requests that I've seen in the Bible that just don't sit right with me, but they're there. And as a preacher of the Word of God, one of the things that I am commissioned to do is to reconcile the Word of God with behavior. In the book of Matthew, chapter 5, we're told not to resist evil. It's like, what, 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 what are you talking about? Not to resist it. I'm called to march. I'm called to fight. So evidently, the word resist must carry a different meaning, you see. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. But I say to you, resist not evil. But if someone hits you on your right cheek, turn the other. That never made sense to me until I learned about peaceful resistance. You see, if you hit me here and I turn, that's an act of defiance, believe it or not. Now, your perpetrator might not know it, but when it was shared, that was what was in the mind of Christ. If you're asked to go one mile, you go two. All of those kinds of things that really baffle the oppressor if there is that situation. And then there's another one. Celebrate when people borrow from you. <laughs> well, you know, the word borrow is so rich. <laughs> I mean, I think when you borrow, you're supposed to pay it back. 
But how many things have we in this country borrowed and never acknowledged the giver? They got another name for that, but I'll leave that alone. And then when we think about other commands, show preference for your enemies. Well, I can kind of buy into that, not because I'm a biblical scholar, but because I, have, I look at the Godfather trilogy at least once a quarter. And one of the things that the Godfather told his son was, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Who would have thought that mafia boss was actually paraphrasing scripture? It just lets you know something about the infinity and the eternity of God. I like to keep my enemies close so I don't know what they're doing. And I'm pretty good at pretending so my enemies don't know that I see them as an enemy. Treat everyone as a child of God. That's the biggest one. People deserve our forgiveness just as much as we believe we have a right to the forgiveness of God. We are to treat others like we expect God to treat us. Then there's another one. Love is not a tit-for-tat game. Just because I give love to person A, and that might include money, doesn't mean that I can expect the reciprocity to come particularly from that source. When I give, I'm giving as unto the Lord. I know that sounds a little old-fashioned, but that's just the way I was taught. So if I'm giving, I'm giving to you in an obvious way, but I'm also investing in the love of Christ. And that moves me beyond looking to you to repay it. <laughs> God will take care of that in ways that I could never imagine. So I'll give you all I can, but I will not see it as a loan. I will see it as an investment into the kingdom of heaven. Pay me back if you can, but if you can't, that's, that's okay. I'm doing quite well. And by the way, if you need some more, you can try. I probably will give it to you because I am a wise investor. So as we sort of move into examples that come out of the Bible, which by the way, I'm working on my third book and it's called You're in Good Company. And I'm looking at 25 heroes or heroines in the Bible and I'm diagnosing them according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual so that people can see uh, they meet the criteria for dysfunctional behavior just like we do. And it's nice to be able to refer to a reference when I talk to clients, letting them know you're in good company in your dysfunction. You are in good company. We have some examples in the book of Genesis. <laughs> we were told that the male and female part of Adam were directed not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to eat of the tree of life. 
Now, you know when somebody tells you not to do something, that's an invitation to do it. You learned that when you were young. So now, God, you, you just told me not to eat of that tree, and you expect me not to eat of it? You made me human. So you, you really want me to, you expect me to do that? <laughs> okay. Then we have Abraham. He was told to leave his home in the land of Ur, moving on out towards Canaan. But realize this, this was an old man. He wasn't a young man when he was told to do that. Imagine God telling you to leave your home where you grew up, you got married, where you have all your friends and family. Oh, and by the way, God did tell Abraham, don't take anybody with you. Abraham must have had one of those you want me to do what moments because he certainly did take his nephew, Lot. Abraham was also told you got to give up your firstborn, let him go with his mother Hagar. You want me to do what? Then God told him, uh, you're going to have to sacrifice the one that's left. You want me to do what? You see, Abraham probably had more you want me to do what moments than anybody else in the Bible. But there were others like Noah, build an ark. Well, if you study the story, it had never rained before. You want me to build something that's going to accommodate something that I can't even imagine? You want me to do what? But that wasn't even the worst part. You take a sample of things, but the majority will be left to perish. And that includes your friends and distant relatives, because he could only take his immediate family. You, you, you want me to do what? And you have the nerve to give me instructions on how it's supposed to be. You want me to do what? Then you got Jacob. He runs away because he doesn't want Esau to beat him up. He's doing okay. He's doing quite well. And then here comes God. Go on back. Go back and deal with that brother who's twice your size. And he can kick your behind, but I want you to go back. You want me to do what? <laughs> you got to be crazy. And then you got Moses. You know, Moses was cool. Moses was born a prince, and he lived a princely life. Next thing you know, things happen, he got to leave. So he, he leaves, and he's doing okay in the wilderness, and he, he gets married to Zipporah. He's, he's doing good, and then God says, okay, I want you to go back. I want you to go back to the place that you ran from for your very life. You, you, you want me to do what? Then Moses had the nerve to instruct the Israelites to borrow from their masters or mistresses. Then Moses gets them to the Red Sea and says, all right, we're going to cross this thing. Oh, and guess what? The priests are going first. See, that, that's how that thing went. <laughs> it's kind of like, now I don't know about you two, and you all here, but I would have said you want, want I, I'd had nothing to do with this. I was minding my own business, and now you want me to lead the way so these people that have been getting on my nerves all my life can cross the Red Sea. <laughs> you want me to do what? Then you got Joshua, Jericho. I want you to walk around this city that is probably the most powerful city you've ever seen. I want you to walk around six times. And on that seventh time, 
I want there to be a shout and a blast. Is that it? What about my arms? Can I go to the United States to get some weapons to fight the enemy? Look, look, do you see what we have to face and you want us to do what? You see, when God comes in, nothing makes sense, but everything works. That's the key to remember. But we don't have to stop with these cases that are millennia in relation to years old. Every one of us has had that same response to the Creator. Our own personal, you want me to do what moments. And as we emerge from this experience, I invite you to think about your you want me to do what moments. And I also would love for you to follow our model of salvation. We call him Jesus, the Christ. Christ is not his last name, but I'm sure you already know that. It's a status, and it's a status that we all hold because we are all adopted into the kingdom of heaven with a mother, a father, and a big brother to show us the way. Can you imagine what Jesus was thinking when he realized something was getting ready to happen to him? And we know that he was bothered by it because he said to his disciples, you know, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I studied that. It's like, you, you do understand he was thinking about ending it. See, see, that's that point of death he's talking about. There is so much mental health and behavioral health in the Bible. It's amazing. Stay here, you guys, because y'all ain't going to be, ha- be able to handle what I'm getting ready to do. Y'all stay here, look out, and I'm going to go a little further. It says he fell on his face to the ground, and he basically said, you know what, God, look, we got it going on. You good. You know, yeah, you created me. I volunteered to come here, but, you know, I'd rather this cup pass from me. But I'm sure before he even said that, he said, you want me to do what? I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. But you want me to position myself to be tried and found guilty? And then, of all things, you want me to experience the worst capital punishment that is going. And the amazing thing is, after he did all of this, Something must have happened between Jesus the Christ and the Creator, of which he is a part, because he ends it with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So the challenge today is to think about what could have been going on between the Creator and our model of salvation for him to show us the appropriate answer when we have those you want me to do what moments. Usually when you have that moment, you know it's right in line with the will of God. (laughs) But the key is to align. And I'll just remember the instructions celebrate those who borrow from you. Show preference to your enemies. Treat everyone as a child of God. 
And just remember this, love is not a tit for tat game. So I invite us to unpack and think through scriptures this week, especially the one, trust in the Lord with all your heart. My head is created and transformed in order for my heart to take the lead. And people say, I, I don't want to think with my heart. No, you want to follow your heart informed by your mind, you see. When I think about it like that, I don't have to rely on credentials or experiences. They inform my God moments. And so I invite you and myself to be comfortable asking God, and you want me to do what? But I also invite you to follow our model of salvation, processing the inconsistency between what God is sharing and what we are thinking. And in the end, I'm sure you, like myself, and like our model of salvation, will end it with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Amen. <laughs>